It is good to see you. It's good to be up here. It's nice to be walking around. If we haven't met, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I spent the last two months uh, in a walking boot uh, after surgery on my Achilles tendon um, because I made the wonderful decision of going to a small child's birthday party. Um, and that didn't go the way that I expected. So if anybody in the back sees my wife walk in, um, she doesn't know that I don't have my boot on. <laughs> and so it might get interesting. But thank you so much for being here this morning. It is so good to worship together. We are going to actually worship a little bit more on the back end today because our whole message is around the idea of worship. And uh, it actually culminates with this idea of the power of when we get together as the body of Christ and we sing songs uh, up to the Lord together. So we're going to do that um, in a little bit. But if you could bear with me for just a couple moments um, and just you guys could make sure I don't fall off the stage, uh, that'd be great because I'm not very stable yet. Um, but it's nice to have my flip-flops back. Amen? Praise God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to jump in at verse 15. Um, a good friend of mine, Josiah, who's one of our interns, did an incredible job last week bringing God's word and challenging us uh, to consider what it looks like to, the, to imitate the sacrificial love of Jesus and to think of people in our lives who have imitated that to us. And now we're going to see the, the shift go from like here's um, the first part of Ephesians has led up to this point where it has talked about why we believe what we believe and why it matters and how that actually influences our behavior. And it was talking about how we should actually behave and now we're going to see something that talks about how it reinforces that mindset and the type of mentality that we should have because it will change the way we live our lives. So Paul is writing again to the church in Ephesus, and he says this to them. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly. But understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with too much wine, because it will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. Verse 20. And give thanks for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me real quick? Holy God, I pray this morning that as we unpack these uh, five short verses from your word, uh, that you uh, would start, as you've already been doing, moving and working in hearts, God. Uh, I pray that you would open ears and soften hearts, to, and that your Holy Spirit would be the one doing the work, and, and that your words are the words that would be heard and not my own. God, I just pray that we would embrace an atmosphere of worship. Um, we would uh, settle into a posture of worship, um, we would reflect uh, mindfully on who you are uh, and who you have been in our lives and how we have seen you at work. God, I pray that right now, throughout the rest of this message, you would start to flood people's minds with times uh, that you were there, the little things and the big things, that people would start to remember moments uh, where you were present or where your power was evident. God, I pray that you would remind people of the first time that they encountered your grace and love 
and how their lives and eternity were changed forever. I pray that you would be flooding hearts and minds with those moments and those memories right now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So he opens up by saying, be careful how you live. Be careful how you live. I want to point out something here. The careful that he's talking about here is not like a fearful, cautious type of careful. This is a careful meaning that you are actually being mindful and intentional of how you are going about your life. It means you're not just getting swept up in the routine of every day. The, the tide of culture isn't like washing you away out to the sea of busyness that seems to consume us these days. But you say, be careful how you live. I, I thought of it in terms like this. Living carefully is living in, intentionally and, and being mindfully aware uh, of both your position in life and your posture with people. I'm going to unpack that. Uh, your position in life. That, think in terms of your beliefs, your values, uh, the way in which you view yourself and others. That, that position you hold is actually what's used to to justify your decisions, your behavior, um, and the place in which you are in life. And then posture, think in terms of the way in which you go about your life. It's shown by your interactions and the way in which you're present with people. Posture is an incredible thing. Posture can affect your body language. Posture can affect your well-being, your health, your joy, your confidence. Your posture in life uh, can tell somebody whether you are a stressed out basket case, like trying to control everything because you're just like, or you're just calm and at peace. I wish I knew that person. Um, I know some of them and I'm jealous of them, but we live in this tension of like, what, what are we doing? Where are we carrying our stress and our tension? And, and it affects how we posture ourselves, not only physically, but also, what is the attitude or the disposition with which we engage with those around us? And so to live intentionally or to be careful how we live, he's saying, hey, like, be aware of your position in life, meaning don't elevate yourself uh, too far beyond where you should and don't uh, lower yourself to a place of insecurity that you shouldn't, but, but know your place in life. Know your place in light of eternity and where you stand with God. Because once we know our position, it's actually going to be what shapes our posture. The way in which we think about others. Do we think of them before we think of ourselves? Do we worship God fully with a posture of surrender, with a posture of trust and with faith? Or do we worship God reserved with reservation and with apprehension and, and not really sure that we want to hand him our whole life. He continues, he says, but live like those who are wise. But live like those who are wise. Think about right now the wisest people you know. Like, think about it. Think of somebody, their name, their face. Um, they don't have to be older, but they might be. Um, and the reason is because they've actually weathered um, a lot more life than the rest of us, which means they have a, a broadened perspective. And I find that the only way that I can grow and increase my wisdom, uh, the Bible says in James 1 that we can ask God for 
um, godly wisdom, and it's actually one of the few things that he tells us to ask for, and he gives it generously. But I also find it by um, pursuing relationship and actually going to people that are wise, that look wise. And what draws me there is not so much, uh, sometimes I think I'm going to wise people to get answers. Maybe you've done the same, but ultimately what I find after getting there, what drew me there wasn't their answers at all. It was, I I was drawn to their presence. I was drawn uh, to the confidence that they had. I was drawn to how warm they were. And here's what we see uh, about people that are wise, at least why I'm drawn to them. And all the wise people I thought of had this in common. They offered well-balanced insights that only were the result of a well-lived life. So people that can offer well-balanced insights, they're not going back and forth, teeter-tottering, like they're also not imposing their opinion on you, but they can see things objectively and from this like peaceful perspective. And it's usually the result of them living a well-lived life. Like usually we're drawn to people that have wisdom because we want our lives to look a little bit like theirs. So I found this in my journey of faith and my own personal discipleship. The people that have followed Jesus the best and modeled that the most to me are the people that have this gift of wisdom. And what I've noticed is, ultimately, they see God personally differently. They see his work differently, which means they're able to see his creation differently. And they've seemed to have arrived, although they would say they haven't, at some place of being content. And ultimately, they are unhurried in their imitation of Christ. They're unhurried in this life. That doesn't mean that they're not busy, but they're not hurried. They actually stop and give you the time of day. So why in the world would we be invited to look to those who are wise, to reflect lives like those who are wise? And here's um, what I think we can, we, we can deduce. Wise people know their position and their posture. They're actually some of the most self-aware people that I've ever met. And in knowing their position in life and their posture with people, it actually does two things for them. It expands their perspective and it reorients their priorities. You think about the people that came to mind. If you look at their life, they have a broader perspective than most people you know. And their lives indicate that they probably have better priorities especially when it comes to people that are following Jesus, because sometimes when I go looking for the most specific answer to the most specific question, the wisest answer I get from somebody is pointing me back to Jesus. It's like egregiously oversimplified and frustrating, but it's indicative of how they are unbothered by the stress or the hurry of life. So I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes it's, feels a lot more exciting to be hurried and to go through life in a hurry. Like, it's all around us in our culture, and we have this need to just go, 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 go. Or at least that was where I was at. Um, and then God said, nope, we're going to slow down. And over the last two months, I've been learning this incredible lesson that I thought I had already learned. What's interesting is uh, the week that I ruptured my Achilles tendon, and started this journey of slowing down. I uh, was two years into already slowing down, and I thought I was figuring it out. 
It's like I'm not working 60 hours a week. I'm like able to sleep at night. I'm not stressed. I'm not anxious. I'm not this busybody. I'm learning to just be present and enjoy life with people. Like people are saying, we don't even know you. Like where's intense, Eric? Like this is fun, nice, Eric. I was like, I don't know. And I thought I had figured it out. And I would figured it out in, in at least the ways I could control. But I still had a ton of work to do when it came to slowing down to be present with the God of the universe. Let me explain. See, I just finished the second time through this book called Soul Keeping. I've referenced before that um, was really impactful for me. Uh, that was looking at this idea of how God created us with a soul to interact with us there at a soul level. Um, and there's this quote from a guy named Dallas Willard who is a theologian. He was a professor at USC. He had all the reason to have a hurried, busy life um, with all the accolades. He was a conference speaker, an author. Um, but this book explains how he lived this very simple life. And he lived calmly and at peace. And he says this, Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. See, that's the difference because I'm in control of what I choose to make me hurried, what I put in front of me, where I run around and what I'm doing. So I can control the hurriness in my life. But there's this temptation to just let it be or that, it actually is a good thing. And so he says we actually need to ruthlessly, meaning we need to like roll up our sleeves and fight to eliminate it from our lives. And that looks different for everybody. But he's on to something here because the way in which we hurry through life detrimentally affects the way that we worship God. Our capacity to stop slow down, and rest will determine how intimately connected we are with the God of the universe. He said it himself, be still and know that I'm God. He's not after our activity. He's not after our checklist. He's not after all the things that we try to do to look a certain way or to appear or feel spiritual he just wants us to be so i got injured that came out of nowhere it was incredibly inconvenient our lead pastor was preparing to go on sabbatical and say hey do my job on top of your job for a couple months and i'm like uh okay i was excited to do that so we were stressed out about how this was going to affect things rich wasn't stressed because like Rich is like the chillest guy I know. He's like, it's all right, buddy. It's all right. He's like, I'm going on vacation. But then I thought about my wife and like, oh, this is going to be inconvenient for her. Um, I have all these projects at work that I'm trying to get done. I have all these people I need to meet with. And I just was consumed with all the, the inconveniences and the problems this created. And I wasn't able to see the opportunity that I'm seeing now as a gift that was actually being handed. See, he continues in verse 16. He says, make the most of every opportunity. Here's what we can learn about hurry. Hurry can cause us to miss 
most of the opportunities that God has for us to make the most of. Our word is our way on purpose. Say it ten times fast. Hurry can cause us to miss most of the opportunities. Not all the opportunities. I'm cutting us all some slack. But most of the opportunities that God has for us to make the most of. Meaning this. When we're hurried, our capacity diminishes to be present and to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. To be hearing his prompting and his guiding. To hear that still, small voice that might be saying, hey, talk to that person. They need some encouragement. That person needs some help. They need some prayer. Hey, your kids need you to get down at their level and look them in the eyes and tell them how proud of you, you that proud of them you are. To love them, to go out and play that sport that you don't even understand. Whatever, to connect with them. Your wife, your spouse needs you to look at them like you did when you first met. And she thought it was a little crazy, but it made her feel a little happy and excited inside. But she needs that. We have to slow down. We have to breathe. God's saying, I want you to just prioritize time with me and remember how good I am. Remember the moments. Remember the times. Remember when you didn't think I was around, but then you remembered I was. Remember the thing that I walked you through that hurt so bad that you didn't see coming, but through it all, we grew closer. Remember. Those are the opportunities that we get to make the most of. And here's what making the most of is. One, it's our opportunity to be obedient to the God of the universe, which is an act of worship. But two, when we do that, when we lean in and we make the most of those opportunities, not only is our life better, but he gets the glory. That's why we're here. Josiah sums up. You want to know what your calling in life is? You want to know why you were created, your purpose here on earth? It's summed up simply. To love, honor, and glorify God above all else. To lead other people to do the same. Here's the goodness of our God. How you go about doing that, he says, choose. I'm going to give you a free will. Use the brain I gave you. Figure out how I've wired you, how I've made you unique. And then understand that as you do that, as you serve me and obey me and follow me, that's an expression of worship, which reveals me to this world. That's what the God of the universe says and invites us into. But as I was thinking through this, we don't always think in terms of making the most of the opportunity. Maybe you're like me and and you can't make the most of every opportunity unless you see the opportunity, which you may not always see. And maybe if it's not your, your busyness or your hurriedness, maybe, like me, you can be a bit of a skeptic sometimes. Let me explain. When something happens, I can become pretty skeptical, especially when I, I don't understand why it's happening. Anybody else there? Like, you don't understand the why. You're like, okay, I understand what happened. I'm not thrilled about it. I maybe know how it happened, but why did it happen? Like, the unanswerable question. And here's what that tells me. Is I, like, this was a nugget for me, and maybe it's a nugget for you, but here's what God has taught me in this 
pre- like preparation for this message today. Skeptics aren't always the best opportunists, and I found out why. Because their perspective can be short-sighted by problems, not possibilities. Let me say that again. The perspective of somebody that is wrestling with why or they're like have some angst around that. They're skeptical. They're not trusting. Maybe they're a little critical or cynical. Here's what that's doing actually in their, in their brain and in their heart. It's shifting their perspective to be focused on problems and not the opportunity ahead, not the direction that it was going, um, but all they see is the bump in the road. They forget the destination. And the God of the universe invites us into this daily walk with him where he is leading and he is guiding. And it doesn't mean that those things aren't going to come, but when they come, we're able to navigate them in a lot more peaceful way. Short-sighted perspective can unintentionally produce self-centered priorities. I don't think anyone's, like, idea they ever set out to make their priorities all about themselves. However, when we're consumed thinking only about the problems in front of us and how they affect us, we can actually reorient our priorities to be pretty self-serving. And as soon as the focus is on ourself, it's off of God. And God is inviting us through knowing him and through having a posture of worship and trust, to be open-handed, to say, God, I don't understand this. I, wa- I want to control this, but I can't. But I-, I, need, I need you to be here. I need to know you're here. And he gives us some ways to do that. He goes on and he says, but understand, understand what the Lord wants you to do. See, realizing our position in life changes our posture from busyness to being present with God. See, when we realize who we are in the scope of eternity, in this universe, and we remember how finite we are, yet loved and known and pursued by an infinite God who literally left heaven to enter our mess so that we might know him more. Like, that changes my position. Being, a, being about me isn't, isn't as, as big of a deal anymore. It sure isn't as important. And I'm drawn to be about him. And not only who he is, and, but who he says I am. Who he invites me to be the direction that he wants to lead me and take me. But I have to get the focus off of myself and back on him. See, sometimes God will do things to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Like, God ruthlessly eliminated hurry from my life. It was painful. Uh, I just started getting the bills. It's expensive. But it was worth it. Because I had these moments I wouldn't have had otherwise where 
I got to see how God would take my thinking and shift it off of myself. Because when I was consumed with the problems and the inconveniences created for me, I was overlooking how God was taking care of me throughout the whole thing. You see, this would have been really, really hard if I had a physical manual labor job where they needed me back at the work site and they like didn't care about me needing to be laid on the couch for a month. But God said, hey, here's a job that uh, you get to have people come meet with you at your house. You can do a lot of it via email um, or phone calls. Uh, you, don't, you just need to rest and slow down. I started getting a little antsy because I felt bad because like, even feeling bad about my wife needing to care for me started to turn into this weird thing where I'd start doing stupid things like trying to do things myself, and that just made things worse. Um, but I felt bad that I was adding this burden uh, to her, which I thought was justified, but she sat me down and explained, like, don't you see? Like, this isn't about you, Eric. You have an opportunity here that you wouldn't normally have to not only spend extra time with me, but with your kids. Because they're young, but they're growing up fast. Like, what are you going to do? Like, are you just going to lay around like a bump on a log, or are you going to engage? Are you going to be present? Or are you just going to wallow? I think the greatest gift God gave me second to my salvation was a wife who doesn't come to the pity party. Like, it was... I'm scared. She's not here yet. <laughs> Let's hurry. We're good. But I had this moment where God, he met me on my couch. I've shared this before. Like, I like to get up early in the morning, um, and it is because I've found that for me, uh, by like 7 or 8 o'clock, uh, my day is meetings with people. So people, 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 people. I like people. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert, though. And, but I also have all this busy work the pastors have to do, uh, organizing things, planning things, communication, um, and uh, sermon writing, content, all sorts of stuff. Anyways, so I get up early in the morning because nobody else is awake. And what I've come to love about the morning is I can start my morning in just the stillness because normal people are asleep. And I get to spend time with the Lord. I get to spend time enjoying God. And I'm not saying the only time is in the morning. That's just what works for me. But there's something about me intentionally carving out and creating time to be still and silent. And, and oftentimes, it goes better when I leave my laundry list of things for God to do for me kind of on the side. And I just show up and say, I'm here. It's a crazy feeling when you show up without an agenda and the God of the universe still meets you. That will change your perspective. That will change the way you think. That will change the way you act. That will change the way you worship. So all this wisdom he's talking about, what in the world, Eric, you said you were going to talk about worship. Here's how he closes this out. Again, keep in mind, this is a letter to a church of new Christians that were figuring out how to 
how to be unified and united together, overcoming like the bondage of generations of social and cultural divisions, incredibly intense persecution. Like, they didn't have it that easy. And yet, he's still saying, no, you need to live differently than this world. You need to live in victory and in confidence. And you need to be unified together. It doesn't matter how different you think you are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic class you come from. It doesn't matter what ethnic background you come from. You are centered around me. I'm what matters. My grace, my love that is sufficient is what matters. And here's what we see God do. Because God, who is so creative, and I would dare say clever, he encourages jingle. You know those annoying songs that get stuck in your head? Something you don't ever want to think about, that if if asked, you would never think of it until you hear the, the jingle. See, God, in his creativity, creates music, and I believe gives it to us as a gift, not only uh, for our enjoyment, to be moved emotionally, to engage with that side. I don't care. Like, I'm pretty emotionally dead inside, and there are songs that I hit play, and the tears come. My kids laugh at me. But there's something about music that, that moves us emotionally and memorably. So he closes out this encouragement with this. He says, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves. So that's together with other people. That's on purpose. And then he says, making music to the Lord in your hearts. So there's something powerful that happens when the people of God get together and sing about what God has done, reminding themselves and one another of who he is and that you're not alone being crazy enough to believe this story. You're not alone in having examples that back up your faith in this story. You're not alone in seeing lives that have been transformed and changed because of the hope and the glory and the grace of a loving God who said, I'm going to enter the mess and do something they can't. Like, that's good. That's why we get together on Sunday mornings and we sing songs. It's not about a tradition. It's not about a preference. It's not about a, a volume level. It's not about how expressive or inexpressive you are or how reverent you are. It is about coming together because the focus is not on us. The focus isn't about me. It's not about my likes and my preferences. The focus is about the body of Christ being built up together, becoming the church so that we can build the kingdom. That's why we do this. If you've been curious why we sing for 15 to 20 minutes on a Sunday, like apart from this, it's not weird for people because it's not foreign. Like singing songs is probably one of the, the things that's least foreign to people that aren't part of the church because we do it elsewhere. We worship other things, sometimes with more fervor and zeal 
But here's what we see God do. He uses the gift of music, and he tells us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It only takes a, a couple lines of a lyric or a couple notes of a melody to transport you to a moment in time. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to share some. I'm not a good singer, but I'm also up here for the first time in a while, so let's give it a go. <laughs> but think about the moment for you. What's the song that takes you to a moment? For me, I just need to hear these words. Someday, when I'm up below, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. Does anybody know Frank Sinatra? <laughs> and in that moment, I'm transported to the Key Bank parking lot at midnight off Meridian, dancing with my, the love of my life. And four weeks later, after meeting her, um, I'm on one knee while that song plays, and she doesn't say no. <laughs> That's where that, like two moments, another Sinatra moment. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you if you're young at heart. Know the song? Those were the first words that I heard singing and the music that was playing as I held my new bride's hand and we took our first steps down the aisle together after saying I do. And the list goes on, but the point stands that music matters. And here's how we see this so much more profoundly in our lives in the church. See, he knew that we would need reminders because we'd forget the small moments we get caught up in the busyness and the minutiae, and we would overlook the times that he was present when we didn't think he was. We would overlook the times that his hand was guiding us and directing us when we didn't believe he was there or cared. He knew that we need reminders when we place ourselves where he belongs. Aren't these familiar? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Do we know these? I once was lost, but now I'm found. What's next? Was blind, but now I see. Whatever my lot, whatever my lot in life, Thou has taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. We sang some of these words reminding us of this this morning. You have no rival. You have no equal, which means, God, you're big enough. Thank you. What a powerful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus, who is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. Here's what worship does for us. Individually, as we make a melody in our heart, but together, it tunes our heart into the Holy Spirit. 
who turns our attention to Jesus and all he's done. This is what worship does for us, whether it's through singing or serving. It tunes our heart into the Holy Spirit who was given to us as a gift to empower us and to compel us, but also to, to guide us as we turn from ourselves and this world back to Jesus. And what it does is turns our attention to Jesus and all that he's done. He closes and he says, give thanks for everything to God. Here's what worship does. It remembers God's faithfulness, which leads us to live out of thankfulness. Worship remembers God's faithfulness, leading us to live out of thankfulness. When you live out of a place of gratitude, you just enjoy life a little more. It's only from a place of gratitude that you can truly be satisfied or content. Have you thought about that? Instead of needing or wanting, but to be at peace with all that's been provided. So the worship team comes this morning. We want to create a moment that we can share as a church family. And before we sing this song, I want you to close your eyes as I read you the lyric of this old hymn that I encourage us to carry with us into this week. It's from a song called Great Is Thy Faithfulness. It says, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. As morning by morning, every single day, New mercies I see. I get to see you in new ways, God. Then it's this reminder that all I've needed, He's provided. Thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. This is an oldie but a goodie. Will you stand, church, as we sing this out? And whatever posture you need to worship in this morning, be mindful now of how you've seen God's faithfulness. Remember now the times that he was there, but you didn't realize it till after. If you're in a place this morning where you just need to know God's there, remember. Remember that you're not walking through it alone. Let's sing this together this morning.